The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 20th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to give you a comprehensive look at church history in three sentences. Are you ready? Okay, here it goes. This is Christianity. No, this is Christianity. No, 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 no. This is Christianity. You see, as long as there has been Christianity, there have been various tribes insisting that their understanding of Christianity is the true and the right one. In many ways, then, the story of Christianity is each generation figuring out exactly what the scriptures teach, or maybe using other sources of authority. What did Jesus mean when he said that? What did Paul mean when he wrote that? And what are the deal-breakers of our creed? Within any group, and the church is no exception, there are always those who are willing to push the boundaries And every group has to decide just how far those boundaries can be pushed before the group itself turns into something different. In short, every group needs to decide what kind and how much diversity can be tolerated before a new proposition becomes something else altogether. On Pentecost, disagreement and separation should really rub us the wrong way, because on this day of all days, we're confronted with the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Church of Christ, and the Spirit brings peace and unity in the Church. We hear from Paul of being one body with many members, a rhetorical device he uses in several of his letters. But sometimes, when you look around at the Christian church as a whole, it looks like there are just bodies upon bodies, and even within them, disagreement after disagreement. Division in the church frequently leads non-believers to say, well, why would I ever want to join you? Y'all don't even agree with one another. One of the hardest things to do in the church, then, is to find these appropriate lines of separation and find out how important they really are. And within a congregation, appreciating as wide as possible uh, these various gifts is not especially easy. It could be very easy for us to say, well, 
at First Lutheran, we just do things this way. At First Lutheran, this is just what we believe. This is who we are. This is our most important message. But the church is truly a diverse gathering place. We're all utterly unique, different in all sorts of ways. We all have different strengths and weaknesses, different spiritual gifts, and no one more so than your own pastor. Just because pastors are pastors, it's often assumed that they're supposed to be good at like all the church stuff. Well, actually, the only thing I'm really supposed to be good at if I discern the call correctly is being a pastor. All the other gifts needed for the church and the kingdom at large, you have to do all of those sorts of things. You have been equipped with all of those gifts for building the church and the kingdom. The Bible itself is diverse. That is, it does tell one main story. There is one meta-narrative behind every word of the Bible. But within that main story are many points of emphasis and many ways to respond and many ways to live out your faith. Within the Bible, for example, you'll find horror and terror and humor and heroes and villains and law and gospel and judgment and hope and faith and love. Within the Bible, you'll find men and women who are courageous and timid, who are shrewd and wise, who are just and evil and sinful and fearful. And you'll find writings of instruction, poetry, history, warnings, comfort, prophecy, parables, and stories. If you put all of that together, our coming together as the people of God to learn the story of God will necessarily mean different things uh, to different people, and we'll see different ways in which we understand God. So the image of the church, then, is not of an identical group of people observing a two-dimensional story or plane, but rather a very diverse group of people trying to comprehend a a three-dimensional cube. Yes, the whole story, as I said, there is a meta-narrative. It's that God is creating and redeeming and sanctifying through the ministrations of Father, Son, and Spirit. But there's a whole lot of diversity in the telling and the living of that one story. So why do churches end up being some of the most predictable and monolithic groups on earth? We self-segregate by race, by age, economic status, and much more. Our theological traditions often force us into traditions or conventions that we find impossible to break free from. So the tradition itself becomes synonymous with the Spirit's activity. This is where I might normally poke fun at Lutherans for being a good example of this. After all, we're, we're pretty boring and predictable, aren't we? But the truth is that even the more exuberant or charismatic congregations fall into the same kinds of patterns of worship 
and behavior, all of us seem to sort of just get in these ruts. I've often wondered then if maybe we're thinking about this wrong. Instead of thinking of each congregation needing some kind of certain threshold of diversity to represent the fullness of the Spirit, perhaps we should consider the way that various denominational traditions, while being truly and authentically Christian, do represent that diversity. Maybe it's okay that diversity among congregations and among church bodies, that is where the diversity of the Spirit is lived out. In so being, they are reflecting, that is, all of these churches, the kind of diversity that you would expect among Christians with different gifts. Denominations, then, as we call them, not my favorite word, but uh, these are God's way of having diversity in the whole body. It might not be ideal, but it isn't either the scandal that we are often told that it is. I don't know if I should lament, for example, that there are all these different denominations. Maybe that is just what diversity in the body of Christ looks like, with different traditions offering different things, and we would do well to learn from them. Some people would say, aha, like I said, the unbeliever might say, aha, evidence that I should never become a Christian because none of you agree. Look at all the denominations. Roman Catholics will often point out, oh, look at all the Protestant denominations. You can't possibly uh, have the full truth with that much division. Rather, I think maybe the way we ought to look at it is if diversity is a good thing and spiritual gifts manifest themselves in different ways, then maybe that's what these denominations and other traditions are. It's the way that diversity is reflected in the whole body. And that's okay. So long as those boundaries are not transgressed that turns Christianity into something else. Within congregations, diversity should be valued as well. So much conflict, I think, in churches would simply disappear if we related to one another by seeking to discern the different spiritual gifts that we possess. We must be careful not to insist that everyone else see things the way that we do or do things the way that we do or even value all of the same things that we value. What makes a congregation strong is precisely the fact that we have many differences and many kinds of gifts to serve the body, and yet we still share in our mission by applying those unique callings. In the world of economics, there's a law. It's called the Law of Comparative Advantage. It's one of the only things I remember from my Economics 101 class in college. And the law very simply states that if a nation is really good, say, at a couple of things, but really excellent at one, one thing, then it should focus on the thing that it's best at. Because there's another nation, maybe it can't do that first thing well, but it can really do the second thing well, and it makes sense to put your eggs in uh, one basket, so to speak. So let's say, for example, that uh, America is really good at producing sheet metal. We're also really good at growing bananas. There are other nations that are really even better at growing bananas, and they don't make sheet metal. They don't have maybe access to steel or something, right? So the idea is that it would be in America's best interest, even though we're good at making bananas, growing bananas, it's in our best interest not to do so. 
because our comparative advantage is that we're super duper good at making sheet metal. And we'll let this other nation that's good at growing bananas, etc., do that. Now, the idea is that in the church, it might be that you are good at many different things. Maybe a very talented person with many gifts. And yet someone else may need to do that thing that you are also good at. Maybe they can't even do it as well. But they need to do that. They need to employ a spiritual gift as they are able. And if someone thinks differently than you or or solves problems in a different way from you, it, it may be that they're wrong. That's often the accusation in a time of conflict. Well, I'm right and they're wrong. It may be. It may be that you have something to learn. When we're critical of one another, when we are not acting as many members building up the body, it can be the case, assuming again that real and true doctrine is not at stake, it can be the case that we're not really being critical of one another, we're really being critical of God. We may be impeding even the work of the Spirit by not allowing people to employ their gifts. And that may be what is meant when Paul speaks about not quenching the Spirit. It's not that we're not allowing people to speak in tongues or faith heal. It's that we're not allowing people to employ their spiritual gifts. There are certain doctrines worth fighting for, even certain doctrines worth dying for. And there are many differences among the brethren that are hardly even worth a mention. We are called to live together in peace, appreciating the different ways that the Spirit works among us. And how do we know when the Spirit is working? How do we know when it's too much diversity? How do we know when another Spirit is at work and not Holy Spirit? Well, I love what Paul says in uh, our reading from Corinthians today. He says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine we live and die on, the Lordship of Christ. And no one confesses authentically the Lordship of Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. And so, so long as we are confessing the Lordship of Christ, and we mean the the same thing by that, then we desperately need to appreciate the diverse gifts among us so that the body can be built up. And I might even say we can go into the world and bring peace and unity there as well. The primary work of the Holy Spirit is to draw us to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Today we have already confessed that, so the Spirit is already here. Now let us employ our spiritual gifts and bear with joy the gifts of one another. Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 28th chapter. Glory to you, Lord. 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Most of the time, the church just swims along rather peacefully. Life is kind of chaotic, but we usually have the luxury of considering our faith in a vacuum of normalcy. Our three-year cycle of festivals and readings serves as just a fine, uh, you know, series of lectures or lessons to take in as we take for granted normal times of peace and prosperity. But sometimes life out there demands a hearing. And we cannot help but to acknowledge it in the midst of this three-year cycle of festivals and lessons. I mean, if the economy crashes or a virus hits or war begins or protests break out, it would seem right to acknowledge that, wouldn't it? It could be argued that focusing constantly on permanent and spiritual matters more than focusing on temporal And worldly matters is the wise course of action. But at some point, to ignore what is going on is to fail to try to apply heady doctrines and biblical stories to today's events. So this week I've been thinking about the headlines that have dominated the news these last few weeks and thinking about our festival for today, Holy Trinity Sunday. What could Holy Trinity Sunday possibly have to say about the events of the world? Well, of course, to always have Holy Trinity Sunday as the Sunday after Pentecost Sunday is a true blessing, for it helps to ensure that Christians will really learn this great truth that we worship one God who is one in being and three in person. This doctrine, I would argue really above all else, is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Martin Luther famously said that about the doctrine of justification by faith. But the Trinity deals with the very nature of God himself, something we surely ought to understand. Before I consider an application, though, I do want to be sure that I simply highlight just What it is when we speak of the Trinity? What do we mean when we say that word? You might hear people say, well, the word Trinity is never in the Bible. Well, that's true. It's a word that we've come to use after the fact to describe what we mean as this one being in three persons. So to be clear, God has revealed himself clearly as being one God and yet these three distinct persons. We are not speaking about three gods. The Father is not the Son. 
The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. But they are all Yahweh, the God of all creation. These three persons have always existed into eternity past, into a time before time. Many assume that only the Father existed at the time of creation, as we heard about in Genesis 1. And then the Son came, you know, at Christmas time. And then the Spirit came at Pentecost. Or maybe there's only one person who shows up in different ways at different times. That's the teachings of the Unitarians. Those who affirm one God, we agree there, but they believe that God is unipersonal rather than tri-personal. When you hear the word Unitarian, that's what it references. Now we reject that for good reason. The Bible, as it you heard from our readings today, Paul almost offhandedly, as he concludes his second letter to the Corinthians, makes mention of the three persons of the Trinity. The very commission of the church found in Matthew 28, 19. Go and remember that Jesus did say, by the way, to teach everything that I have commanded you, but baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And then, of course, the Spirit hovers over the waters, over the chaos in Genesis 1. So we say, yes, there's great biblical evidence and witness to these three distinct persons. You also have examples where the persons of the Trinity communicate with one another. The best example would be Jesus' high priestly prayer, perhaps, in the Gospel of John. The Son is praying to the Father. Because misunderstandings or false teachings about the Trinity have led, of course, to false religions and cults and schisms, or is it schisms, it is important that Christians have the confidence to know that within the pages of Scripture is the clear doctrine that we call the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And yet they are not the same person. So other claims of deity that speak of a God, but they're not Trinitarian, we would say are not representative of the one true God. So uh, it may be that other religions will speak of a God that strongly resembles the Father, but they would deny the, the deity of the Son. In fact, we are speaking there of different gods. Now maybe this is very helpful, because maybe now we can start to apply the doctrine, the heady doctrine of the Trinity, to the headlines that we have seen this week. As the Trinity is tripersonal, there is an eternal, internal relationship in the Godhead. Eternal, internal. I thought a lot about whether I should put those words next to each other, but I thought, no, they both are important and they belong there. And because love is one of the hallmarks of God, the Trinity helps us to understand that. Love, you see, requires an object. I love you, you love him or her. We all love ice cream. Love requires an object. But if it is God's very nature to love, is love possible if God is unipersonal? Can God self-love in such a way? Is self-love 
even a virtue, a, a kind of love to which we should even aspire? Christians have never said yes. Or is love an essential universal force that even unbelievers agree is a good precisely because the God of all the universe is defined by love, the love among and through the three persons that are the one being of God? In other words, if love is inherent to God, God made everything, then wouldn't it be the case that we see love throughout the universe? Or it's universally accepted that it is a virtue? Thomas McCall, a scholar on the Trinity, puts it this way in a book that he wrote on the Trinity. If God is perfect in love, and if God's perfection is not compromised by dependence on creation, that is to say that God was perfect before he created. You know, he didn't need a perfect creation to himself be perfect. Then God must be loving within the triune life or on the inside. That's why I said eternal and internal. Within the ways the persons relate to one another is love. And it's always been there even before the creation. If the divine persons love one another, they must be relationally distinct enough to do so. And thus we have reason to hold single-subject theology at arm's length. Single-subject theology meaning monotheistic, unipersonal religion, something like Orthodox Judaism, Islam, etc. Now, what does John 4 say? It should be a pretty famous verse for us. First uh, John 4, I believe I should have said. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And what do we mean by love? Well, of course, we're not talking about a romantic feeling, or really sort of any feeling in a way that could come or go. Rather, this is a virtuous love that puts others first. It's pure love, you might say. H.E. Babar who quoted Thomas McCall, the quote I just read, he writes this in his book. Love in the strict and theological sense is not a taste for the consumption of a loved object, but a desire for the good of the beloved and the disposition to act in that being's interests. Such virtuous love is non-self-interested. It desires the good of another for the other's sake. Now, maybe we just sort of take that for granted now. Yeah, of course that's what love is. Yes, but where does that come from? What, what, what is it about our Christian tradition and witness and scripture that makes that so obvious to all? What is it about the universe that makes it so obvious? Well, I would argue again that within the triune nature of the Godhead, you have love being a hallmark of the very existence of God and therefore the very existence of the universe. And so my question is, does that sound like something that is needed now? Does it sound like something that is needed always? Does it sound like something that would benefit everyone, this 
deep and abiding understanding of self-sacrificial and giving love? Does it sound like a way forward, a way towards healing, a way towards unity, words we're hearing a lot about these days, a way towards understanding, a way towards peace? Could it be then that understanding something as dry and old and dusty as the doctrine of the Holy Trinity could show us a way towards healing? Indeed, I would say it's the only way. I don't know if that makes me hopeful or pessimistic. But there is nothing more universal than the creator of the universe. And if God's very nature is tripersonal, eternally able to sacrificially love one person for another, then that means that love is not just a human ideal, but literally a driving force everywhere in the world. There is a reason that this understanding of the God of the Bible has prevailed over the centuries. There is a reason that where the Christian message has been preached rightly, it's often preached wrongly, but where it has been preached rightly, love and service follow. And there is a reason that we see in the absence of this God of love, this God of love, mankind can so easily resort to little else other than raw power. We Christians would do well to listen to those who are issuing cries of pain. And we have a response unlike anyone else outside of the kingdom of God. We have a message about a God who is love, who serves, who seeks not to dominate. The followers of this love have a unique calling. Jesus issues it in Matthew 28. A unique calling and mission to spread this love of God. And this is the message that is needed to be heard by all men and all women, perhaps especially if they are in positions of authority, but certainly regular Joes and Janes like us too. There is no hope in a message of power that will overcome yet another power. That's just a recipe for war. So as we look around the world, sometimes in more chaos than at others, we want to know what to do. Maybe there are legislative changes that need to be addressed. Maybe we need to go out of our way personally to be more understanding. Maybe we should, as some police officers did this week, in the face of protesters or demonstrators, take a symbolic knee in solidarity. I think I'm going to write an article about that this week. I have issues with taking knees and how that goes about. But maybe in that situation, in that group of people, it was the right thing to do. In the long run, what is needed is clarity about who God is. I mean, isn't it just like the pastor to basically say, what we need is more Christianity. What else am I supposed to say? (laughs) What we need is more Christianity. More clarity about who God is, how God is love, how he created us all, every human being in his image, and how a life of obedience to him produces the best possible world. This week you may have been shocked if you noticed a 
uh, a one sentence or two in the newsletter article that I wrote where I said that we should be unashamed in building and creating an explicitly Christian culture. Not even many Christians would say such a thing. And yet in the wake of violence, in the wake of injustice, it should be obvious that what we need is that more and more. For the triune God whose festival we observe today is a God of love. As the three persons in this one being that go by the name of Yahweh, they have always and they will always be defined by their love of one another and their love of you. Amen.